Welcome back to the Alexander Schmidt Podcast, episode 59, Contemplative Conversation um, 14. We're back with Mr. West Chance. West Chance, how are you? Good. Good to be back. Good to have you back. Even though we just had about a 27-minute conversation just before we got on air here, where I think we, we pretty much figured out the nature of the universe and the cosmos together, uh, we'll have to see whether we can piece it all back together here. Well, that's, that's every conversation, though, right? I mean, that's, that's nothing new. That's interesting. That's funny. You remind me of the Timaeus and the, the idea at the beginning that um, every, every, every conversation is a likely account. As if, uh-huh. as if whenever we converse with each other, whenever we dialogue with each other, we're trying to construct uh, a bridge between reality and our own maps of it. Or, mm-hmm. or that we are trying to, to uh, maybe alter the map to fit reality even better by our shared experience and logos or, or mm-hmm. reasoning. And, and not so much looking at the words we use so much as trying to use the most appropriate w- words in order to figure out what it is that we are expressing to each other. Because, of course, in condensing our experiences down um, into an account, into a story, um, the, words, the words are not primary, but rather the condensed experience is. And so yeah. I think that's why sometimes it's important not to get so much caught up on the words that we're speaking to each other, because of course we're clunkily using them if we're speaking honestly, right? Because as we speak to each other, and this is another platonic distinction, we speak as friends. And so we give each other the benefit of the doubt. And so even if I use the wrong word or I don't say something right the first time, or it takes me five times to say it right. And I lose my train of thought, which I often do when I'm speaking to you, um, you don't treat me antagonistically simply because I lose my train of thought and, you know, I'm mentally, <laughs> mentally limited in that way, or, or because I, I use a specific word that has differing connotations and you've chosen to fix on, say, the negative connotations mm-hmm. of those words and thus the negative connotations of people who use those words. And, and I say connotations rather than denotations because I don't mean like, say, express hate speech, right? There are certainly right. things you can say to people and words you can use, which are fairly well-defined that um, will upset most good company and probably lots of bad company as well. Um, yeah. But, that, but even, yeah. If you're, even if you're using something that, you know, could have a double entendre or you, uh, you make some kind of um, uh, slip or whatever, yeah, it's that, that sort of thing I think is also a sign that we're engaged in a kind of i think we were talking about this before we're practicing we're training you know and so making mistakes is i guess in some way a sign of uh, of growth so that's right and peterson uh jordan b peterson who i had the chance to see last night in nashville which was a very interesting experience though not as interesting as i thought it might be um which i thought <laughs> itself was very interesting because i was glad to be seeing somebody i respect who has directed me towards so many excellent primary sources several of which I'm reading right at this moment, like A Billion Wicked Thoughts and Religions, Values, and Peak Experiences by Abraham Maslow, as well as The Origins and History of, um, of, the Uncon- or of Consciousness by Neumann. These are all big league thinkers from whom Peterson uh, derives much of what he says. And so when I got to see Peterson speak, you know, I had heard much of what he had said because I've read his 12 books, uh, Rules for Life, 
heard many of his YouTube lectures, and I think almost all of his coursework, all five of the Maps of Meanings that you can find, as well as the personality courses, and I've read Maps of Meaning. And so it was interesting because it's getting to the point now, and I think this seems to be the point where much of what he says I can think through myself due to the mm. gift of being able to think clearer because of his clarity of thought and the clarity of thought of all the other authors I'm reading who are presenting me with all these major uh, empirical findings. Uh -huh. And so that, I, I'm more and more capable of reasoning myself. Sorry, go on. Yeah, that, well, that seems like the kind of, um, the kind of point at which you want to start to do your own research then, right? To also, like you see like how, how this process works and you see some of the existing findings and some of the existing interpretations, right? Which are compelling and which open up all these avenues to, to go on and do further work. So it's like that, that's kind of an exciting aspect of it too. It's if it's, if it's really that new to you, then, um, you know, going in and, and trying to do it for yourself, you're bound to make uh, an error or two. But at the same time, if the, the alternative is to just sort of keep staying within the same circle of, uh, of existing interpretations, which, you know, they, they sort of lose their, their charm after a while. So Right, right. And we were talking about before we got on air, I've been reading just a little bit of Maslow. I actually bought this one book today, this wonderful used bookstore. I visit anytime I'm in Nashville. Um, and he talks about the difference between three different perspectives on living and that there's even biological evidence that one of these perspectives is the best as well as political, cultural and familial and personal evidence uh, as well as psychological. He's a psychologist, of course. And uh, these three ways of looking at the world are regressive. Just go backwards. Um, coasting, mm -hmm. not putting any effort forward, but, you know, getting by and growth potential. And he says, well, the growth the growth potential mindset or the growth value, the value, the growth value mindset, basically what it wants is good health, good teeth, good hair, uh, physical beauty, success, smarts, um, lack of anxiety, lack of insomnia, lack of pain, uh, all, all sorts of biologically rooted things. And he also says that, well, this also happens to be the best um, and the natural way towards which humans progress, though uh, sort of in the same way that humans initially walk poorly they progress towards uh forwards with inefficient tools because they have blurry goals but the more clear more the more clarity they bring to their goals the clearer their goals become well the clearer becomes the value of the tools they're using and the sharper becomes their perspective necessary to sharpen and improve the tools necessary to get towards the goal better and so mm -hmm. and so maslow suggests that well when you have the growth mindset rather than a regressive or a coasting mindset that's essentially what you're spending all of your time doing you're refining your tools and also refining your vision of your goal and that creates a maximally meaningful existence for you which can live essentially from birth to death and um, yeah. that that means that you're constantly living in what piaget calls the uh, zone of proximal development the transformative zone where you are transforming that which is unknown to you into known like when you're acquiring a skill or learning something, but also transforming yourself and your map of reality by expanding it out as well. So it's like sort of a trinity, right? The, acts of, the act of transformation, that which is being transformed, and that which is being integrated um, as well yeah. into oneself. And so Peterson has often said in his lectures 
that he thinks that it is in that moment, the zone of proximal development, doing that growth value mindset activity that uh, um, meaning kicks in, that the feeling of meaning is rooted in your nervous system. And these two uh, authors, I'm going to butcher their name, Ogi Ogas and Sai Gadam, who are computational neuroscientists from Boston University who wrote A Billion Wicked Thoughts. Well, they write about the function of the sympathetic nervous system, which is part of the autonomic nervous system, which has more neurons than um, that which helps us to be under voluntary control. It, it is the nervous system that deals with like the unconscious functioning of our organs. Mm-hmm. And so one thing it does is it readies us for fight or fright or fright <laughs> or flight or for staying or, or for freezing. Um, when we get put in anomalous situations, when we get put in new situations or transgressive situations, situations where we need to act quickly. And so yeah. with more sympathetic nervous system activation in those moments, and you might imagine that the feeling of meaning or the area of proximal development, since you are facing the unknown, is like facing something which is like a predator, like, uh, like a tiger or something, which would result in the same physiological response for you as seeing a physical predator. Well, in those moments, then your that which is a thought or that which is your map becomes rooted in your body by the activation of your sympathetic system. It actually becomes part of you and it leaves an emotional imprint in you. And if you think about the big experiences in your life, they're generally marked by strong emotion right? That's how they're easy to pull up. And they're also, those also happen to be the moments that can cause trauma. And when the information latent within those uh, memories, you refuse to access, though your attention, like the golden snitch, is naturally drawn to it. And so that's a point that Maslow makes about why every human can um, pursue individuation and say like a free society because every one of us have meaningful emotion-ridden experiences in our past that we can mine for data about human nature by observing the effect that those experiences had on us. Yeah, that's awesome. I mean, I think that it's, it's very, like, um, it's, it's beautiful that you can have those experiences and then share them. And I guess the flip side of that would be that they're, when, when you are unable to share them, even to articulate them to yourself in some way to, to process them, then the flip side of that incredible beauty and potential is, is what we, you know, get sucked into the talking about trauma, particularly with like children in schools who are, are sort of unable to access all of the great stuff that you might want to offer to them because they haven't yet, you know, begun to do the, the, the necessary work of sort of putting together their own setting their own their own individuality in order right like like they haven't processed enough of their own experiences to be able to access these vicarious experiences in in great books and things Mm -hmm. and it's i mean it's especially a shame that when when you get to the point where your um your 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 job as a teacher is to try to share those things and perhaps you yourself have not yet developed to the point where you're ready to do so and so you sort of are unable to appreciate the beauty of of a great book and you see only that it's an old book by an old dead white male and then you say well 
well, why are we even bothering with this? Let's, let's just focus on the trauma. This, this is the sort of thing that I, I feel like is at, at the back of a lot of the problems with, uh, with education where you sort of like, you, you, you lose sight of the bigger picture. You focus on these, um, these so, so-called problems, right? Or issues um, in, in, the, in the smallest possible in like this, you know, but immediate way, right? You deal with these kids every day and so, Right. I think, I think you're, you're, I think you're right. You're, it's an attempt to squash individuality as a reality yeah. and as a concept, because in taking an issue or taking a stand against a group, one, one suggests that group identity is the most important defining um, aspect of oneself and learning about group identity and one specific group identity as the specific task, therefore of education, which it seems sort of foolish because it's like, well, that seemed to be the old argument against indoctrination for old U.S. history courses, right? That the, the whole idea is that you wanted to teach people how to see reality, not necessarily give them propaganda about how great America is. And in fact, if America is a really great place and we actually value freedom, then we should have the freest education ever, right? We should have give the most yeah. amount of information and guidance to people, but not just and here's a point that Maslow makes in uh, Religions, Values, and Peak Experiences when he's talking about a value-free education. When you, when you try to take values out of education in the, and suggest that that's more scientific and that values are the specific domain of religions, well, the fact is that people are less and less religious and they don't share the same religions anymore in the same way that they might have even 50 years ago. In fact, a few statistic taken from last year showed that a white Anglo-Saxon Protestants for the first time in American history are now under 50%. And so values are part of what education has always been because education has always been part of creating a citizen in an individualistic society, which means that the person needs to be capable of the free use of the logos, of that which acquires and ingests information and develops a map and pattern of behavior necessary to live in accordance with other people that are recognized as capable of mapping and changing reality in accordance with their maps, other conscious beings. And in fact, I think that that is actually the point of the master and education is to, to uh, Piaget talks about one becoming a game master, a creator of bounded spaces, which, which have rules that can bring about the, the highest level of adaptation from players, which produces, of course, what? The next game master, the genie, the next yeah. uh, sort of Dionysian figure. And I would say that, that that is what I would say 100% the point of the, the show Westworld is, as well as what the point of all games and why we record masterful games and sports and series and stories. Because we are attempting not simply to teach about a tradition or body uh, of our artifacts that other humans created that does have tremendous value, but we are trying to show the process by which such people became the people they were meant to be and the products that, that marked their becoming of something. I, I think that's actually what a dissertation used to have to be, it, like, like a, a declaration into the world, an infusion into reality of one's being as a doctor of one's art, a learned one. I would say that's yeah. in fact what we're attempting to do here in our own specific new creative uh, way that we're not only transforming ourselves, but trying to transform uh, e even the method by which um, information is shared with other people um, in this uh, 
in this new game, yeah. in this new environment, in this new world in which we find ourselves occupying. Right. I'm, I like the, uh, the image of the Ludi Magister. I think that's really like a fruitful metaphor. Um, and I guess the, the idea of it being a sort of a ritual experience, a, a, a rite of passage, right? Um, that does seem, again, to have some inherent, like you could fail that, right? Like if, yes. if there's no possibility of not, be, if not, of not accomplishing it, then it's not a real rite of passage. With that said, you have a structure set up, right? To, to do everything possible to help that person actually be prepared. And then, you know, they, they do the best that they can. And, that's right. And that's, Everybody's given a place on the game board. In, uh, in America, at least, you're given a social security number. You're given access to, to health care, potentially. You're given access to at least habeas corpus and rule of law and several social services, included, including education um, and, and also scholarships and grants and being free. You are free to take whatever the terrain of your existence is within the rule of law, and that's your game. That's your territory, and that's what you can bounce your creativity off of in order to make your specific existence work. So you, of course, have some controls, which you can call tyrannical, like laws and customs and things like that, which are constantly changing, however, so they're not that tyrannical. Um, <laughs> and you have, of course, judges interpreting them, which means you do have a living logos at times deal dealing with these issues, uh, and especially on the Supreme Court and any state Supreme Court. And, and so what you're free to do is everybody's on the game board. And even though, of course, it can be very difficult and such, nobody keeps one from their full blossoming within the situation they find themselves in. You do not blossom or become a Ludi Magister outside of the situation in which you find yourself. Like your living situation, your 24 hours, where do you live? How do you interact with the people around you? I think this is what Earthbound tries to teach you, the beauty or the game of the mundane you are constantly within a rule-bound environment with several physical and social constraints and also talent constraints and emotional constraints. And you're trying to navigate through that as well as possible to pursue and refine an end that improves not only your life, but the lives of those around you. And that makes you a good person. And Maslow suggested that the top actual value there, the top biological value is truth. Um, and that goodness comes after and that beauty comes after that. It's so funny that like the Latin maxims from your old chain yeah. of schools, great hearts, the, the pulchrum, the, the, not the beatum, that's happy, excuse me, the pulchrum, the verum, and the bellum. Bonum. Oh, bonum, excuse me, yes, excuse me, pulchrum, not bellum there. Yeah, of course, very good. The bonum, the bonus, good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, well, it's, yeah, of course they're, of course they're there because, I mean, as much as, like just as you said right he's he's like taken in this this long tradition and then accessed new tools and the the chief thing about that tradition is its own ability to kind of regenerate itself and and improve itself along the way right and then he sort of applies that to a new domain of uh, psychological research right so it's like yeah that's a great model <laughs> yeah what's um, interesting about it is it seems to be like the theory of metempsychosis that the Pythagoreans believed in, uh, the sort of Dionysian, Attic, or Addis-like, or Tammuz-like, or Adonis-like, or Jesus-like death and rebirth motif of that, like, 
the, the whole point is not simply to see the tradition when you look backwards, but to see that which is working through the tradition. I don't necessarily mean in a Hegelian spirit-like way, unless you translate the spirit or geist as consciousness, logos, and its development in people. And the metempsychosis seems to be that you learn the tradition well enough in order to grasp, boom, boom, what's actually moving in history, what's actually that people are making choices is what you mm-hmm. ultimately have to come down to in, in the scene that take responsibility for making your own choices. And then, boom, you've accepted individual responsibility. You're free. Your shackles are gone. But now you have to take responsibility for all the evil and good you've done in your kids in the garden because you experience <laughs> a psychological submergence into the underworld. Because now that you're taking responsibility, after your shackles come off, you immediately get flooded with all the things you've ever done, which you must now take responsibility for. This is the weighing of your heart on the balance against the feather. And do you think anybody ever has won that? No. <laughs> and so the crocodile comes and eats you. And that's the, that's also the, the dragon of Pinocchio or the, the monster whale, or also the Jonah whale as well. And in that underworld where you are being digested, sort of like the Satan or from Dante's Inferno, you form yourself anew, as the alchemists would say. You go through a, a sort of transformation, a, cal- a, a deconstruction into your particular parts, and then a reconstruction. And that that is the transformation of the logos, and that that is the point of a, a value in liberal education to take the shackles off those people currently living so that they can live in upright, noble, free ways and pursue their own uh, natural growth. And that seems to be as free as you can possibly be. And making making the field of play the same for everybody strikes me not as liberating in that way um, because each person's individual territory that they have to navigate means that each person has an individual story. So that strikes me as utterly tyrannical. And then it's attempt, like in Philip Pullman's, um, uh, uh, the, not the Amber Spyglass, but his Dark Materials um, yeah. series as an attempt to eviscerate, or not eviscerate, but slice down the middle of the soul of a human to slice them apart from their diamond to slice them apart from their story, to slice them apart from their environment, to say we're all the same. We have to all go through life in the same way, though we're going to say we care about diversity while still suggesting that everything has to be the same. It's like, (laughs) no, that's tyranny. Right. Um, Right. It is fighting tyranny under, it is (laughs) leading to tyranny under the guise of fighting tyranny. But yeah, go on. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's sort of the unintended consequences thing again, right? Like the, uh, with every, with every good intention, you try to perhaps shield somebody from, from a, uh, what you take to be a a bogus canon, or you try to keep them from, uh, uh, some kind of a bully or something like that, right? Like, so that, so that in so doing your, your intentions are good, of course, and the uh, the way to, I suppose, evaluate that, as you say, um, has to be something other than just your own subjective, um, you know, uh, approach or 
or claim about what you think you're doing. If there's, if there is actually some slightly more objective uh, fact that you can draw upon to, to show really the, the outcome of your decision and whether that be uh, truth or good or beautiful, whatever you want to call it. Right. Like, in some sense, the, the thing about all of those, the claim he seems to be making there is that those are things that you can actually measure. You can actually, yes. you know, put on the table yeah. and everyone can see and you can talk about it. You'll each come at it from your own perspective naturally, but there is something there that everyone's talking about together. Right. So, yeah, yeah I think, I think we can put to bed some of I, we can put to rest a couple of these concepts. Let's see if we can do this one really quickly. The idea that you should make somebody safe. Well, here you go. In the Adam Eve story, as well as in the story of the Buddha, as well as in Aladdin, you, you have these royal princely sort of figures who are protected from the outside, anomalous information, though anomalous information makes its way in to each one of these places. And so what is the problem with trying to protect somebody? When trying to protect somebody from the world, do you ensure that nothing will ever threaten them? <laughs> no. Because you can never, ever ensure that somebody will not be threatened by someone in the world because they certainly will be, and not the least of which, possibly you. Uh, yeah. Because as They're a human, secrets. you have access to malevolence. And so they don't even have the power to stand against you, which is perhaps your unconscious motivation for protecting them, uh, as you say. And so, yeah. so what should you do instead? Well, since they are going to have to deal with stressful, dangerous situations in their lives, almost constantly and in a manifold way, they need to be the sorts of creatures that are capable of adapting and adapting to a situation in which disaster has occurred and transforming the situation from disaster to, to acceptable status quo that enables them to pursue growth values again. Mm -hmm. And so that means that you shouldn't be like throwing them to the wolves. And there's a, P a point Peterson made yesterday, but you should be guiding them into situations that are challenging for them and potentially have an element of danger in them. I would say that's why I think that uh, the Harry Potter books did so well, that at Hogwarts, where, which is a place that people universally say they would love to go to, you could actually get hurt. You could yeah. cause yourself to shoot, you know, you could, your wand can misfire and you could shoot slugs out of your mouth. Your broom could get cursed and you could fall to the ground and break your arm and then it could be repaired in an incorrect way. I mean, there's a lot of pain that goes into, uh, in, in, into that. And because of that actual pain, and not to mention the fact that their sympathetic nervous systems are aroused and, and, and therefore they have emotional situations uh, or they, they remember those moments all the clearer because of the emotional valence of them. They, um, mm -hmm. <clears throat> I'm, I'm totally forgetting my point right now because I went out on so many tangents there, Wes. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, the thing I was thinking about was how not everyone gets to go to Hogwarts, right? Much as you might want to or think you want to go, you, you got to get the letter by the owl, first of all, um, which is, again, something that I guess a lot of people are probably bound to be disappointed by by, by that, right? There, There's not necessarily again um inequality in the gifts that that a harry potter has versus i don't know a uh, a hagrid right they're both delightful people they both get to experience the world in in sort of profound ways and then they share those differences but they they're not like of equal stature 
you know. Yeah, and you that's know, that's where, something that, that, there's no story if there are. Then, if they you were. know, I think that's exactly right. And Orson Scott Card, I think, sort of nailed that down when he wrote not only Ender's Game, but the the other Ender's Ender something. I forget what the other name of the book was from a different character's perspective in the same story. And so oh, yeah. the thing is that Hagrid and Harry are both part of a profoundly interesting and archetypal story, which means that they're eternal and they get to embody internal roles. And that's something I think we're forgetting is of the utmost meaning to us. It's how we individually choose to take responsibility for an eternal role that gives ultimate meaning to our lives. But you could just as well write that story from Hagrid's perspective and I think we would be just as enchanted. In fact, I'm sure there's plenty of fan fiction from Hagrid's <laughs> perspective out there. And maybe we can do some checking on that because I know you've got that, that course coming out soon. And I know that I promised all the viewers that I would be doing some lectures. And I, I, I haven't yet, but maybe someday I'll, maybe we can just do dialogues on all of these books. And we can say that that's our own version of education and say that that's how we do themes and units and bullet points. <laughs> I guess. I mean, or, you know, or from the Dursley's perspective, right? Like they, um, they're, they're sort of this, this necessary background for the story to take place, right? You could yeah, write a, a story, majority. you know, it, it would be a, it would be a dismal story, but um, you could <laughs> do that. That's like, you know, the, the extreme, uh, I guess, of, of banal realism, but um, you could do that. That's the story you can tell. I mean, yeah, we should, by all means, uh, you know, talk through more more specific texts here going forward. I I, I do want to do uh, a conversation about Earthbound specifically this this week sometime. Okay, uh, that's great, and that's something that I I've been I've been a big fan of. Um, so this summer seems to be the first summer that um, we're really kicking it into gear, and perhaps you've done better with summers in the background, but really taking seriously this growth value idea and taking seriously the idea of opportunity costs too, right? Because we as teachers have set ourselves up to where we can functionally use about two months at a time to really delve into our work, into our research, into and to the products that we bring out to our surrounding community. And so you're trying to write more and more blogs, you're running a course, you're doing more and more podcasting. I'm attempting to do the same. And so we're trying to show up more and more. And in fact, we recently had sort of a final cause, like the most popular podcaster in the world, Joe Rogan, does around four or five podcasts a week, three hours at a time, three hours at a time. And so that's a lot of work that he puts into it. And well, that was something we talked about too, that there is no substitute for putting the work into an endeavor if you just think about it in terms of micro transformations every time you practice something and when you're putting attention into it. If you're practicing eight hours a day and somebody else is practicing three hours a day over the span of, say, uh, even just a week, you've already put in 40 hours in a five-day week, and they've put in 24, and then expand that out times four, and then times 12 for a year, and then times three years, and you've just produced so much more. And that's what a conscious being with conscientiousness or industriousness can do. We can set goals and then pursue them, and it's especially helpful when we have people who are at the top of an industry showing us the amount of work necessary to do this um, sort of thing, at least on one front, because of course we don't see the back end of it with him and all of that. But at the very least, we know that he's on the mic 15 hours a week and yeah. has in fact done two in a row before. So six hours of conversation, which 
might seem indulgent. It might seem easily easy to a radio DJ, but it seems pretty hard to me, uh, especially if you're thinking the whole time. Uh, yeah, I, I've never been a big talker, but on the other hand, thinking about this as a, as a form of, of education, well, that sort of is interesting at least. And the thought of, I think, well, part of what his, his program is, is, is always like a conversation. Right. And so yes. it's not quite, it's not quite the same as just like lecturing for, yes. for three hours. It's, it's harder in some ways and in some ways easier, I suppose. But. I think that's sort of what we're doing. I want to tie that back to the summer notion before we close tonight. It's, we talked about summer activities and I think that's going to be a recurring theme for us. But one of the, like the marquee summer activities is when your friends come over and you play video games together. But you don't just play video games together. You also play games together, depending on how fun the house is, during the day and during the night. And there are different games for during the day and during the night. And there are even games for when everybody goes to sleep, too, ultimate pillow fights. And during the night, of course, capture the flag and like serious hide-and-seek and stuff out in the yard. And during the day, you probably play a smaller version of the sport you might play with your friend. Like So I, with my friend, between like 7 and 11, his name was Carson, we would play baseball actually in our league and then we would go back to his house and we'd play baseball in his yard left-handed and then we'd go play video games and it would be baseball and so <laughs> it's like what what are we doing together when we're young friends and we're playing all those games together well we're mutually exploring ourselves and the unknown mm -hmm. um and because the other person is so isomorphic and so extremely similar to you at that young age to share or at least you, you're sharing that you are missing so many experiences together and you're almost equally curious. And so you're exploring mm. together, but under very constrained, already created for you sort of ways, right? Games that have been created by other people. But what we're mm. doing here now in our magisterial nature is we're exploring in a game that we're creating as we're playing it. Right. Yeah. It's demiurgic in that way. And so we are giving the likely account of ourselves and the state of our art as we express it. So it's like every word that comes out of our mouth is the state, is the state of the art. The, the provisional nature of it is, I guess, redeemed by the fact that you couldn't get to the next one without going through this one. That's right. The logos has to fall, has to go through it. No truth is ever true forever. No piece of art is of seminal importance. It is just important in that it houses more or less logos that helps to inspire the active use of logos in the next generation of people. That's the big key for education and art, I would say. You've got to pass on as much as possible just so you can hit as many people as possible and liberate as many minds as possible, not simply for the vain desire to make something simply unique or something that will immortalize you that seems to go against the ecclesiastes maxim of there's nothing new under the sun it's like okay well that's fine but there is something that can disappear that all history has led towards the acquisition and improvement and promulgation of that we can do our part to help with and it also happens to be the ultimate goal and uh <laughs> and the ultimate goal of the ultimate archetype that you can embody which is the hero and it is get the treasure from the dragon, bring it back to the kingdom to restore the dead king who mm -hmm. is, is you because you have now become the king through mm -hmm. going through the ultimate sort of sacrifice through in, in going through the symbolic death 
and rebirth of facing that which could devour you. Um, that could even be your own greed too and acquiring something of great value, perhaps, uh, perhaps a, a devastating criticism of some contemporary <laughs> scholars and they're, and they're very much protected <laughs> ivory towers talking about how everything's being taken from them. There was this recent Washington Post article that Peterson actually read from yesterday, which uh, was called something atrocious like why we, the case for why we should hate men. And it's like, oh, yeah. of, of, all, of all people, a, you know, a, a professor <laughs> of sociology in a university has, <laughs> has so little right to say something like that. Um, and, but I guess the, it's the beautiful thing about it, right? Like, they they get to they get to yeah, say that that's anyway. right that's right it's like that's fine <laughs> yeah like it one can... of the least possibly oppressed people one of the freest possible people you might say even having the mouthpiece so that they could write something like that completely unverified by fact and boom all of a sudden it reaches tens of thousands of people and it's like and using that very freedom that she would fight against um <laughs> that's that it is interesting the absurdity and and, and that Especially when I see, like, say, these these absurd Christian atheist debates, too, where basically the claim the claim gets made that well, you act as if you are Christian, and well, saying that something is embodied is not an actual reason. It's like, well, uh, we might want to actually look at some of these things. Aristotle, and I don't want to get into that specific debate <laughs> right now, but I, I I would like at some point to get into how that debate is often framed and why that's unhelpful, because a point that Peterson sure. makes is that a lot of the new atheists like Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins, as brilliant as they are and as rooted in science as they are, share the same prejudices of all the scientists from the last half century because they haven't read Carl Jung, who helps to bridge the gap between psychology and science and shows sort of the innermost values that humans have had since even evolutionary time that affect how we perceive reality. And the moment that we see that we perceive reality in a motivated way, then will understand that science is motivated too. And in understanding the motivations behind science, we might be able to actually use science in a value-based way. <laughs> and so instead right, of right. Like, say, producing, you know, chemical weapons, uh, we, we could maybe focus more on, you know, treating cancer, which obviously we're making great strides on. I heard a statistic today that um, something like juvenile deaths from cancer have gone down from something like 80% to 20% over the last some amount of years, which just seemed like, oh my God, that's incredible. Um, but it's like, you know, we could always be doing more of that. Seeing human suffering seems to be a perennial issue that we will never be done with. And that if everybody worked as hard as possible to uh, de deal with that, we probably still wouldn't make as much headway as we could on. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. why, why not? Because, you know, if you have a little of a good thing, why not? make more of the good thing and have more of it yeah right it's not it's not a thing that by by sharing it out you only it only grows it's that sort of thing rather. that's right like civilization like culture like a surplus in a capitalist society it's like when your poor people also have smartphones that means that at least on an absolute scale they're no longer poor they are relatively poor compared to the people within their own society which can lead to aggression all sorts of uh bad conflicts that are related to the dominance hierarchy, which I've recently been researching in a billion wicked thoughts and a couple of articles on, I think, uh, the National Health um, website. Mm -hmm. It's interesting. I always thought that Peterson came up with that 
notion of the dominance hierarchy, but no, it's, it's very much rooted in psychology and biology. Um, and so and that makes perfect sense. And, uh, well, so in any case, that's very interesting. So what, what have we talked about today, Wes? We've talked about play. We've talked about the growth value mindset, the idea of having values in education and what the value of education should be and what, and what true diversity or true, yes, what true diversity can actually be for people seeming to be their diversity of stories, which they bring their own free choices into. Um, and what else? What else did we cover? Uh, well, we went on a, a few tangents that were, I think, relevant, but uh, we sort of more specific. Potter. Specific to, yeah, some, some current cultural and sociological phenomena, I suppose. Um, I think we definitely uh, laid out in sort of a vague, but at least um, tentative way, what sort of this project looks like, right? Sort of sharing out more of this good stuff that's, that's out there. Yeah. Um, Stilling yeah. it down, creating, instead of, this is our attempt at making our home brew, you might say, <laughs> or, or this, is, this is our own vegetable garden that we have here. Um, and so maybe the taste will be better at first, but we'll, we'll hone our craft as we continue to make new brews. And, uh, well, you know, perhaps it will never be delightful to the taste, but will be salutary in its effect. I hope but, so, yeah. But, you know, we can, always add, <laughs> we can always add some sugar, as Mary Poppins suggests. Oh, gosh, yeah. Or, or I think Lucretius, right? He talks several times about putting the honey on the rim of the cup. Yeah, and we're so. going to have to do a, a, some symbolic investigations. I really want to do the underworld with you and talk about some bees with you too. I, I continue to be so impressed by your symbolic investigation of, of the ladders that you did a couple weeks ago or several weeks ago now on um, Anchor. That really just stood out to me. I thought that was tremendous scholarship on your part, even though you were saying you were just playing around and then it might seem inappropriate to some people <laughs> amplifying that image like that. But what's interesting is that, and I don't mean to go on this tangent too much, but a big reason that Peterson supposes that Carl Jung his work didn't get popular during his time was that many of his clients and uh, the people who learned his style of therapy were women who were excluded from the university at that time. And so were very creative individuals, but weren't necessarily going to be scholars. And so, and so that method of amplification, which he would use when doing dream analysis or looking into somebody's feelings in order to look at what images symbolize the feelings in order to see what situation caused those feelings is an extraordinarily effective way of thinking and is in fact what I think we call brainstorming and is called stream of consciousness by some, though I don't agree that James Joyce does it in a natural way like sort of we do, but I think a good lecture or a good conversation follows this yeah. direction of amplification and then maybe some analysis and synthesis and additional amplification, throwing out all these images, something to chew on for people. And I think that that method of thinking, as powerful as it is and is rooted in language and symbolic thinking, has been sort of poo-pooed or pushed to the side as like weaker thinking with this, mm -hmm. uh, this scholarly desire to write and think analytically, which is, of course, extraordinarily right. important, but is only at the most half of the game. Um, yeah, 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 at most. And I mean, 
I think that's a point that's made really powerfully in a book that I know mostly through Peterson's talking to the guy who wrote it, the uh, master and his emissary. Yes. I saw that at the bookstore today and I wanted to buy it again. Yeah. It's fantastic. I mean, I, I don't, I don't know quite where he stands in the, in the sort of the ranks of, of eminent scientists and whatnot, but he's got to be up there. And, and he basically makes that point with a lot of data to back it up that, that other alternative modes, including more synthetic or exploratory ones are, are as important or perhaps at this time in history, even more important, you know, to, to take what's been done by the analytic approach and actually put it into some kind of, workable context. That seems to have been your question of what I was attempting to do with my Iliad lectures early on. And also seems to be exactly, oh no, I'm forgetting the other example I had for that. That was so wonderful. Oh no. Oh, it's also what Plato does, especially in the Timaeus, where not only does he reason something out, but he lays out a likely account, sort of a vague account in which you can sort of look at things because Oh, I understand why that works now, Wes, because just we have a very vague way of perceiving reality around us and representing it while we're walking around visually in order to think we need to lay out our sort of vague perceptual structure of how things are as well. So you actually (laughs) construct your map as you are talking with somebody because it is sort of tattered and broken in your own head because you can't see its own internal inconsistencies because for one, it's massive, mostly embodied, and you can't articulate so much of it until you dig down deep. And that's the going into the unconscious, right? Why do I do these things? Why do I feel these things? And when you throw it out in language, you, you actually see what it is you see and you actually see what it is you know and thus you see the boundaries of what you know and can see the next things you don't know, which puts you into the area of proximal development. And so that becomes the game, right? Because you see all these, these pieces missing from the puzzle in your immediate inclination and in actually seeing this as a conscious being who naturally tends towards growth uh, mentality is we got to fix this up. We got to fix this right. up. And, you, you know, you even see this in activities of humans. They buy cars that are fixer-uppers. They buy houses that are fixer-uppers. They date guys like us who are fixer-uppers. And <laughs> it does, we build things up. We're like the spider. Uh, yeah. So not icky. Well, you know, it depends. And, uh, <laughs> like, well, I'm loving doing this with you, Wes. I'm hoping that we're going to keep doing this more. I know that we did one just three days ago, and, Maybe we can even do some themed weeks coming out here too or have a certain time or keep doing different times and just keep creating different patterns and pursuing different constraints on this pro- mm-hmm. project just to continue to see how we develop and where we develop out and uh, what this all ends up turning into because perhaps we're just following the lines of a spiral as those who believe in fractals in their macrocosmic and microcosmic nature might suggest like Dante. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sounds good. Well, until we go deeper, Mr. Chance, it's been a wonderful conversation. Appreciate it. I'll talk to you again soon. Talk to you soon.